Hello and welcome to the Worldwatch Nation podcast. In our next feature, spread out over three parts, we turn our gaze to the sweltering and dusty plains of Sicily during the summer of 1943, as we talk with Battlefield Guide and historian Mike Peters to learn a little bit more about Operation Husky and the Allied invasion and campaign to capture the Mediterranean island. Part one sees us taking a look at why Sicily was chosen by the Allies following their success in North Africa, Casablanca Conference, how the Allies tried to hide their intentions to the Germans with Operations Mincemeat and Barclay, the opposition faced by the Allies on Sicily, the fledgling Allied Airborne's role to come, including in particular the glider pilot regiment and the differences between the US Wacker and British horse gliders. And that's only just starting to scratch the surface as we discuss the Ponte Grande Bridge and an episode of Herculean logistical feats in terms of Operation Beggar or Turkey Buzzard. Before we begin, I just quickly wish to say that here at Worldwatch Nation, we're hugely passionate about history. And we've recently created a range of historical gifts and exclusive designs inspired by the past, with each one focusing on a specific aspect of the Second World War. We really enjoyed researching and creating these designs, and we hope you like them as much as we do. You can check these out at the Worldwatch Nation shop today at www.worldwar2nationshop.com or alternatively by following the link to the shop directly below this podcast. Now on to part one of talking Operation Husky here on Worldwatch Nation podcast and we do hope you enjoy. With the successful conclusion of the Allied campaign in North Africa, how and why did the Allies finally decide on Sicily as their next theatre of operations? Well, uh, that's, that's quite a, that's, the, that's the crux of the, of the whole thing, really. There was a lot of debate uh, which took place uh, primarily at um, the Casablanca conference earlier in the year, where uh, there, there, was, there, was friction, there was friction definitely between the US and the UK about where 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 it should be next. Because of uh, North Africa was essentially finished at the end of the Tunisia campaign, um, the Western Allies were not engaged on land anywhere against the Germans or the uh, Italians, the Axis forces, and of course uh, the Soviets were, were bearing the brunt of the land battle. So there was a lot of political pressure, certainly from the, from the Soviets and Stalin, that what were the Western Allies doing? So the question was, where to fight next? And uh, that decision was, was taken at, uh, at Casablanca, and a fair bit of um, political skullduggery, I'd say, went on because the, the uh, Winston Churchill and the British wanted to fight in the Mediterranean, and the Americans were under Roosevelt were quite suspicious of their motivation for that, uh, and quite reluctant to, to get engaged in the Mediterranean. They wanted to go, uh, you know, Route One uh, straight across Northwest Europe into Germany. So was there any realistic alternative at this moment in time to Sicily, or was it really only Sicily? No, there were alternatives. The, uh, you know, uh, Corsica, Sardinia, uh, even, even uh, as was done later, you know, possibly Greece. And of course, the, what, what they weren't quite aware of at the time was that uh, Hitler himself was absolutely paranoid about any Western intervention, Western Allied intervention in the Balkans, and that was... He viewed that as his Achilles heel, and uh, the Balkans and the remaining oil fields were always on his mind. Uh, so, but uh, as to the Mediterranean intervention, once the discussion was made, and, and, and the, the British manoeuvred the Americans into agreeing to uh, 
to uh, Operation Husky, um, it would be Sicily. But there were a number of uh, viable alternatives to Corsica and then leapfrog into southern France, which appealed to a lot of the Americans. Sardinia uh, as a better place, but the, the, the British managed to swing the argument uh, quite convincingly to go for Sicily. And the Americans said, OK, yes, we have to fight somewhere. OK, it's going to be Sicily. You've already touched on the symbol conference of January 1943 at Casablanca. Obviously, there was a whole ensuing debate about the invasion plans that followed. This is kind of an early indication, I guess, of the existence of an inter-allied rivalry and frictions. But were these overcome during the campaign? And how did personal rivalries at the highest level between Patton and Montgomery impact proceedings? attempts to conceal the, their true intentions and more importantly did it work in helping shift the Axis gaze away from Sicily? Good question um, most people know about the man who never was Operation Mincemeat uh, it's that part of a, a wider plan called Operation Barclay which is a wider deception plan of course the British were past masters of that even even quite recently in North, in North Africa at uh, Alan Halfa they, they uh, left a uh, what was called the Haversack Roost. They'd left a, a military Haversack with uh, plans in for the minefields at Alan Halfa 
uh, in the path of the advancing German 90th Light Division to be found, and that, that worked. The Germans picked up the minefield map and went into the minefield, and, uh, uh, you know, so that deception worked, and historically we've done that a lot. So the Operation Mincemeat, uh, the, the floating of the body off the Spanish coast with all the dispatches and authentic letters and yeah, the, the wallet litter, the theatre tickets, all that, mate, all that stuff they put on the body and dressed up as Major Martin, the Royal Marine, uh, worked really well. And, and uh, some of that, some German naval units and uh, land forces and air components were moved around the Mediterranean over towards Greece and, and towards Sardinia. So ultimately you end up with two, two German divisions on Sicily and, and, and that's all. So it, it played to... Um, Hitler's weakness and his, his worry of, of the Balkans and Greece. Uh, so when Churchill gets the telegram in Washington saying mincemeat swallowed whole, you know, he, he's really happy because he personally authorised the mission. So, yeah, deception does work. And, of course, the Allies have that advantage of ultra. They know it's worked because they're reading the German uh, traffic, signal traffic. So they, they've got confirmation that their plan has, their deception has worked. You've kind of just touched on it. Um what type of opposition did the Allies face on Sicily? Well, uh, we have to remember that this is right at the end of uh, the North African campaign and just before Operation Citadel, so the German attack occurred. So the, the, the main focus for the Germans is, at this point, the Eastern Front, despite this worry of the Balkans and the Mediterranean in North Africa. Um, so uh, I mentioned the two German divisions, which are 15 Panzer and uh, the Hermann Goring Division. Of variable quality, still being worked up and re-equipped, as the Germans do very well, being reconstituted. Um, some air units in the Mediterranean still, uh, and some light naval opposition. But, and for the um, on the Italian side, uh, the Italians under uh, Alfredo Gazzoni have got uh, what on paper looks like quite a sizable force. They've got the Italian Sixth Army on Sicily. Uh, which has got um, five coastal divisions and two brigades uh, spread around the, around the main key points, the harbours, etc. Because Sicily, the terrain can lend itself to defence. The road network is poor, it's mountainous, so you secure the harbours and you secure the road junctions, etc. Uh, so they've got these five static divisions, very similar to what happens almost a year later normally with the Germans, static no transport, low-grade troops, mainly Sicilian, which is a key point, because the Sicilians are no fans of Mussolini and the mainland Italians. Uh, and uh, they've got some mobile groups, which they hold back. Again, German Normandy tactics, where they hold back their best troops, their mobile reserve, uh, with mainly obsolete vehicles, to be, to be frank. Their armoured vehicles are, are well out of date, but they keep them back. And the idea is that once any Allied landing takes place, that uh, once the thrust is identified, they can use these mobile units to counterattack with support from the two German uh, divisions. And the Germans have a, a large strategic reserve for the Mediterranean held in southern France, which they can send wherever they need to. But it, it's, it's, a, it's a best week. I mean, Kesslering, the German commander, Albert Kesslering, who's quite pro-Italian, but he knows the truth that the, the Italians lack defence stores, they haven't got enough concrete. They've not really been working on the defence of Sicily for long. They're desperately short of barbed wire and quality weapons and troops, etc., and mines. He calls, he, he sums up the Italian uh, static defences in one word, and that's eyewash. In terms of the scale of the invasion force, the numbers of divisions employed, ships involved, and the number of men put ashore on those first few days, 
Was Operation Husky actually a larger seaborne invasion than Normandy, which follows almost 11 months later? Yeah, it's one of the, I think that's one of the, the lesser-known facts about that. I mean, the, you know, the, the Allies will land 160,000 personnel, uh, 14,000 vehicles, uh, 600 tanks, uh, 1,800 guns. And ultimately, by the end of the six-week campaign, they'll have landed 467,000 troops. But the key thing is the size of the... Uh, the naval force, um, it, it's bigger than Normandy and, and most of the specific operations. So, you know, you're talking um, 3,200 ships and major landing craft, numerous other vessels, torpedo boat destroyers, etc. And they're moving initially 66,000 Americans, some from the US, plus 115,000 Brits from the Middle East, Tunisia, and even the UK. You know, and on the initial assault, they land 400 tanks. 1,800 artillery pieces and 14,000 vehicles. So um, it is bigger than normally on, on the first day. There are more combat divisions landing and more material being landed. And the the, the naval threat is perceived to be bigger, so the, the covering force around that, that armada is much bigger than it is required for the crossing of the English Channel. This campaign was also a milestone for both Britain and Americans' fledgling airborne forces, with the first deployment en masse of parachutists and glider-borne forces on an unprecedented scale. What role were the men of the 1st Battalion Glider Pilot Regiment due to play in this? Um, well, it was, it, it, the analogy of Boynton's uh, burning hole to a pocket is used for market garden later in the war. And I, I, I think the, the glider operation uh, on Sicily is the same. Uh, we, you've got to remember that um, we'd only carried out one combat operation with gliders prior to that Operation Freshman, the, the doomed operation to tackle the heavy water plants in, Norm- in, in Norway. Um, this operation would be the first time that the, the newly formed fledgling first air landing brigade would be used to, to bring in assault troops. And the glider pilot regiment was, was a relatively new formation, untried in combat, and they would be used to bring that. And there was some debate as to what to use gliders for whether they should be used uh, to seize key points in landing to them on operations on bridges, or whether they should be used right on the coastline to knock out some of the coastal batteries uh, around uh, around the coastline prior to the landing. But uh, ultimately, uh, again, we talk about personalities and egos, they would be used for um, uh, coup de operations at Ponte Grande, later on for, for Operation Ladbrook, and they'd be used for Fustian uh, in support of the parachute landings. Um, the U.S. would give up their glider tubs and uh, a number of gliders to allow the British to use there because the British had priority. Um, so the U.S. 82nd Airborne would drop by parachute. Uh, British 1st Airborne Division, which is newly formed, the original Red Devils, uh, would, would land with gliders and by parachute. Um, so interestingly, this is after Crete, when the Germans are coming headlong in the opposite direction, saying, no more large-scale airborne landings. They're, they're too uh, too costly, too attritional. We, we lose too many valuable aircraft. We're not going to do that anymore. Coming in the exact opposite direction of the UK and US, saying this is the way ahead. We're going to use this uh, this new Excalibur weapon against the Germans and the Italians. With only a few weeks to prepare for this monumental operation, what challenges were faced by Lieutenant Colonel Chatterton's men, and what were conditions like in the North African desert? Yeah, so this is this is. Lieutenant Colonel George Chatterton, who's the commanding officer of uh, 
of the glider pilot battalion, and, and he has a concept of the total soldier. He's a, an, an, a grounded RAF fighter pilot who crashed about the same time as, uh, as Douglas Dard, was in hospital at the same time, is invalided out of the RAF between the wars. Uh, in 1940, he's, he's, in the, uh, he's in the Queen's Regiment, and he's serving in, uh, in the Dunkirk campaign, where he sees the, uh, the guards uh, on the retreat to Dunkirk, and he's, that stays with him. He serves alongside the guards, and he stays with that, and takes picks up their ethos. So here we've got a man who's a fighter pilot originally, now an infantry officer, and who's influenced by the, the ethos of the guards division, uh, the foot guards. And he is the second in command initially of, uh, of the first, of the first Italian Glider Pilot Regiment, and is responsible for training. He's a good friend of, uh, Boyd Browning, and, uh, teaches him to fly. And when the original CO, um, Colonel Rock is, is killed in a flying accident on Salty Plain, Chatterton steps up and Chatterton has it develops the concept of the total soldier where a glider pilot who's primarily a sergeant or a staff sergeant who's come from being a corporal from anywhere in the army apart from the armoured corps that they weren't allowed to transfer in because tank crews were needed to crew tanks uh, would go through a grueling searching process to thin down the numbers because there were so many volunteers who wanted to fly and these glider pilots these total soldiers had to be able to operate whatever equipment they carried in the back of their glider, whether from radios to small arms to anti-tank weapons to mortars to heavy machine guns, etc. And also, they could be expected as senior NCOs, airborne senior NCOs, to lead and command small groups of men in isolated parties, if that's the way it happened, if they were, if they were split up. And uh, also, later on, the idea was that although they were valuable, they'd taken a lot of time to train, that they could be a last-ditch reserve force for the airborne brigade or the airborne division they're attached to and used as light infantry. So if you were a glider pilot under the Chatterton's regime, you were excellent at drill, you were trained by the guards, you did battle school, you were you were you know, a senior NCO who could, could operate nearly every weapon in the army, and you'd also completed the complete Royal Air Force flying syllabus, flown solo on a Tiger Moth or a Magister, then converted to gliders. So you were quite a high-caliber individual, although all of the glider pilots I've met over the years, over 30-odd years, I've never, ever heard one of them use the word elite about, about themselves or their camp badge or their regiment. They've always played it down, which has always impressed me. I'm going to uh, just talk a little bit about uh, what conditions were faced, because Chatterton's quite keen to carry out the operation, even though the glider pilot regiment was still in its infancy and all his training had gone on. There were no gliders in North Africa. Where the, where the operation was going to take, take place, where it was going to be mounted from. And uh, the, the CO at the time, uh, the GOC of the Airborne Division, a man called uh, General Hockey Hopkinson, uh, was desperately keen. He was a civil pilot. He, he really wanted to be the first man to commit British gliders en masse to a, an airborne operation and made sure that that was the case. He convinced, um, convinced uh, Montgomery that they should use gliders and that it was a viable option. The problem was that the glider pilots were all in the UK, had very limited flying hours between them, as many of them hadn't flown for months because there was a shortage of tug aircraft and, and uh, training aircraft, and there were no gliders in North Africa. Uh, they, uh, the Americans have, by coincidence, WACO gliders, W-A-C-O uh, gliders, in crates in West Africa, and these are gliders uh, ship be shipped from West Africa up to North Africa where they're married up with glider pilots who are brought in by sea from the UK and on, on windswept fly 
covered horrible North African airfields. The glider pilots are basically given the manual and a, and a couple of uh, um, um, American mechanics, uh, fitters who, who know, know about the WACO, and they self-assemble the gliders uh, in, in, in the heat of the North African sun. And they live in the packing crates that the, uh, the gliders assemblies come in. And then some American glider pilots are seconded to train the trainer, and they train some of the uh, more experienced glider pilots, British glider pilots, to, to fly the WACO side by side. And then also this training program starts, and you build the gliders, you self-assemble, you test fly them, you convert uh, in those terrible conditions, and the guys get on with it. And by the time they get to the pre-op pre husky, the most they've got flying-wise on the WACO is eight flying hours, of which one hour at the most is night flying, and yet they're going to be asked to do a night, a night operation across the Mediterranean. You've sort of touched on it now, having talked about the WACOs, but what was the difference between the British Horsa and the US WACO gliders? Um, well, the, the WACO, uh, it, it's about conceptually how, how both nations approach the problem. I mentioned uh, Colonel Rock, the star of Major Rock, as he was at the time when, he, when this happened. Uh, he he was consulted about uh, what did a British assault glider want to look like. And most people were familiar at this stage with the German DFS-230, which carried 10, 10 men. And he said, well, the unit of currency of the new airborne division is the platoon. So our glider needs to be able to carry an airborne platoon complete. So that if it lands somewhere, that, that platoon and its platoon commander are together, or it needs to be able to carry a jeep, the prime mover, and the, and the six-pounder anti-tank gun or a trailer, whatever it's being asked to carry, so they all stay together. So the Hawser glider, the airspeed Hawser, was built around that concept, and it could, it could carry 28 men, including the pilots, or a jeep and a gun or a jeep and a trailer. It was built out of non-essential war materials, and it was a, it was an excellent aircraft, and it could land in a very for such a large aircraft, it could land in a very small confined space. Out huge uh, flaps when it landed, they were, they were called barn door flaps, so they could stop in a very short space, as most of our listeners will be familiar with Pegasus Bridge and what happened there in the short space they landed. If we, if we look across the Atlantic to the WACO, uh, the Americans have a very different uh, view, uh, as you'd expect. The original concept was that they were told, build me a jeep that can fly, was the original idea, you know, and a great blue sky thinking if you part the bus by the US. What that then manifests itself into is we're going to fight in Europe and we're going to fight in the Pacific. We want a glider force. That will have, we think, roughly 10,000 gliders. So we need to, so it's about an economy of scale thing. So we need to build 10,000 gliders. We need to crew 10,000 gliders. We need to do it quickly. So they need to be easy to build. Uh, and the WACO is based on the idea that uh, it will carry half the number of, uh, of the hoarder, make it easier to fly and manoeuvre. And you'd be able to carry two, two of them behind a tug aircraft at the same time in tandem. And uh, it will carry a jeep or a gun or you know, a, a, a section plus of men. The chances of those two uh, two aircraft, with a, one with a gun and one with a jeep, for example, landing in the same field at night are minimal. But the WACO is not wooden like the Hulls. It's, it's alloy framed, lightweight. It's, uh, it's easy to build and uh, it's easy to fly. If you look at YouTube footage or uh, pictures of a wacko, you'll see it hasn't got huge flaps like the horse. It's got it's got it's got elevators and flaps, but it's got on the top of the wing. It's got these small slats that pop up, 
like spoilers. And that is that makes it very stable and quite easy to land and very very uh, slow. It almost hovers down off the ground unless it's very overloaded. Now that's great if you're on a nice training airfield in the US, but if you are in a, approaching a hot landing zone, that's really not what you want. So you've got the the issue of it's small, it, it can't carry much, uh, and you know, and the holder on the opposite side is very it, it can carry everything. You land together, and it's a good aircraft. So there is, there is, it swings around, approach. both aircraft are good for different reasons. Um, uh, but uh, I, and the, and the other thing is the training pipeline. You need to be a much more skilled pilot to fly a Hawser than you do to fly a Wacko. Uh, Wacko is very much much easier to fly, and the glider pilots who fly them are very different. They're not this, there's no total soldier thing. They're a pilot. I land my glider, I walk away. You need to get me out of here. So, so they become what. Uh, James Gavin, the, the commander of 82nd Airborne, uh, aftermarket guard, that they became a huge logistic bird uh, on the ground. How did this impact the tactical doctrine of the Glider Pilot Regiment in Sicily? Uh, well, the WACO is just too too small. And, and when the first Airborne Div planners started to get into the operations they'd been given, they realised that the, the Germans' legendary ability to counterattack with armour was going to be the main threat to any airborne landing in the first hours after landing. So they desperately needed to ensure that they got anti-tank guns on the ground in the first minutes or hours of, of any landing. And the WACO just couldn't be relied on to do that. You needed the jeep and the gun. So a number of horse gliders were needed for, you know, everybody knows about Dead Stick and Operation and Pegasus Bridge. Uh, but, you know, the assault on Ponte Grande, which we'll talk about later, no doubt, you know, preempts that by 11 months. So, and that's using all the gliders to get more troops on the ground, uh, bigger numbers, but also for both Operation Ladbrook and Operation, Operation Fustian, it's the key thing is those six-pounder anti-tank guns need to be got on the ground. And the only way that uh, Chatterton and his staff around him thought that could be done would be to use all the gliders and not the WACO. The WACO is good for small numbers, and we use them for what we call special forces operations today. We use them in the, in the Mediterranean and uh, in Yugoslavia for the rest of the war, and they're good for that, but it's like a light helicopter. But the Horsa is the workhorse of, of British Airborne uh, glider operations in World War II for that reason. Some horses were actually made available just in the nick of time for the evasion, courtesy of a remarkable and largely forgotten Herculean logistical feat. But what was the story behind Operation Beggar? Yeah, I mean, it, it, Operation Beggar, it, it astounds me that more people don't know about it. They may, those that do would probably refer to it as Operation Turkey Buzzard, which is the nickname that the air crew and the glider pilots uh, gave it. So having established that they needed hawser gliders, they were not in North Africa. Uh, and there just simply wasn't time to all the space on merchant shipping to get hawser gliders broken down into the 35 very large major components onto ships and shipped all the way through to the Mediterranean. And then what if the ships were sunk and all that kind of question. So uh, some, some quick thinking had to be done and some adaptation. So the idea came about, well, why don't we fly them all the way from the UK to North Africa? Uh, and the big question was, well, how do, how, how will we get there? You know, that, that contested airspace, it's German airspace on the way, it's a long way. So a series of trials were carried out very quickly in the UK where some of the very few available Halifax bombers were, were stripped out, stripped of most of their guns, uh, had uh, extra fuel tanks fitted into their bomb bay, 
and were simply flown around the UK airspace thinking how, how long, how many air miles is that, how long is that taking, will that get us all the way to North Africa? And it, after some really hard work and some very quick modifications, it was found that it was viable. So uh, Beggar, or Turkey Buzzard, was to be mounted uh, from Port Reith in Cornwall, and the, the glider and tug combinations were set off individually, not in formation, just a two, two aircraft, one, one tug, one glider, from as far south as they could possibly get, and fly southwards across the Bay of Biscay, which was patrolled by Fockwolf Condors and JU-88, etc., and get themselves to North Africa. And the only the only compensation given for the, the length and duration of because remember these aircraft have got no assistance to the no power assistance to their controls was to put three glider pilots on, not two, so that they could rotate the guys and take a rest of the controls, and that the third guy might be able to operate as some kind of rudimentary rear gunner with a Bren gun uh, in the event of attack. And that was a real threat. The uh, that was, as I said, patrolled airspace by the Germans. They got a. Uh, they took off from Port Reith uh, in a series of missions, initially with a, 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 a fighter escort of bow fighters, but because the bow fighters would fly to the extreme limit of their fuel, they didn't want to be detected and hit themselves on the way back by by, by being intercepted by German fighters. So that, that leg with, with an escort had to be done at very low level, so almost way top height. Quite dramatic when you think about it. So they take off Port Reith, fly, fly across the Bay of Biscay, once the bow fighters called bingo fuel and turned back, the Halifax and glider would climb and start their, their solo effort to get themselves to North Africa. And a, a number of gliders took combinations were intercepted. And the, the, uh, the drill was, if you were attacked, ideally, as the Halifax only had uh, one turret left, the rest had all been taken out, it, it couldn't really defend itself, especially against something like a JU-88, uh, that they would fly for cloud, fly into the cloud and hopefully shake off the German interceptor. If there was no cloud, the simple thing was you cast off the glider and leave it. And uh, that happened uh, on, on a number of occasions. In fact, one of, on one occasion, one of the Horde gliders, having been cast off, dived down and tried to ram one of the Ju-88. And one one glider crew spent 11 days in a dinghy bobbing around in the Bay of Biscay. Uh, yeah, and there's all kinds of stories. Right? You use the word Herculean, and I think that's, that's, that's quite right. We ended with over 30, 30 hawser gliders in, in North Africa uh, ready for operations. And you think about the Halifax crews as well. You know, they'd never done this before, uh, and they had to fly all that way. And so the Halifax in North Africa and UK, it was a massive effort at that time when, of course, Bomber Command needed every four-engine bomber it could get, so there was always that friction with the Air Force as well. But an extremely brave and, uh, you know, too many people use the phrase forgotten, but I think it's underappreciated that say, more people need to know about Turkey Buzzard. There were three operations planned for the use of the 1st Airborne Division on Sicily. The first of these was Ladbroke, which was to precede the arrival of the seaborne troops and took place on the night of the 9th of July. What were its key targets and did it go off according to plan? Yeah, so uh, so Ladbrook is, you know, we've used paratroopers uh, in North Africa at battalion level and brigade minus level. We've used uh, very small special forces style raids. We use gliders in Norway. Ladbrook is the first time we're going to go for a brigade sized um, uh, landing operation using uh, Horsa gliders and uh, the Border Regiment and the South Staffs and. Um, and all the 
gliders using wackos and hawser gliders. And the, the, the key objective of Ladbrook uh, is to secure, secure the port and the, the roads around Syracuse in advance of the 8th Army landing to the south and driving north. So it's almost market garden-like because of the, of the, or even Normandy-like because at the centre of that Operation Ladbrook is the coup de main operation using six hawser gliders and a company of the 2nd Battalion South Stafford to uh, seize the bridge at Ponte Grande, which is on the main road up from the, the landing beaches through uh, Syracuse and on to um, Catania, which Montgomery definitely wants to thrust north. So it's almost almost like a 30 core market garden type scenario. Um, also, using the rest of the battalion, other than that company, they are to seize things like the port of Syracuse, uh, the telephone exchange, power stations, railway bridges, etc., in advance of the attack. And uh, that it's quite a it's quite a ballsy night attack uh, using both battalions in by glider. Um, it goes horribly wrong. Uh, the wider operation, which is well documented, in, it, it results in uh, almost well almost 300 British troops drowning at sea uh, uh, because of bad information about the weather and poor training of U.S. transport troops, uh, transport crews. The coup de main at the centre of it is is a is a success, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about that in a moment. But uh, and uh, you know, I think it puts uh, Pegasus Bridge in the shade, to be honest. But um, that's a controversial comment. But I, I think I, I still stand by it. But uh, Ladbrook, is it a success? It's a costly airborne operation that Montgomery says uh, you know it saved him at least a week on the advance to Catania. So when we take military staff rides out to Sy- to uh, Syracuse. We always say, was it a risk? Was it a gamble? Was it successful? Uh, discuss, and it's, it's always an animated discussion. Well, talk us through what happened at the Ponte Grande Bridge then. Okay, so Ponte Grande, as I said, it was meant to be uh, six, a six glider op, uh, landing a company of infantry with, with, a, with attached engineers and medics and glider pilots to seize and hold uh, the Ponte Grande crossing, with, uh, which is across the canal and river, and directly on the path to Catania. Um, what the plan was, was obviously all six gliders to land with lots of specialist equipment, Bangalore torpedoes, uh, mine detectors, the medics, you know, remove the demolition, drive off the Italian garrison, uh, remove the, uh, the demolition charges and preparation for the demolition, secure the bridge and hold it, hold until relieved, that classic line. Um, for various reasons, when the when the when the gliders set off from North Africa, uh, they're going to fly at wave top height, the brief, till they get to Malta, where they'll see crossed headlights, uh, crossed headlights, crossed searchlights over uh, the one of the airfields. This is a turning point. So turn them towards Sicily, and then as they fly in, they'll cast off and carry out what gliders are best at: a silent approach to the landing on Ponte Grande, overwhelm the garrison, secure the crossing. That's part of the wider operation of Ladbrook, and the gliders are set off in a stream. The British can't fly in the same formations as the Americans. The Americans like to fly in sixes and nines uh, in a VIX formation with a transport aircraft. Because well, for necessity, they're short of navigators, so sometimes only the lead aircraft has a navigator. They've got real training problems. And a lot of the guys are raw. This is their first ever operation. They've never been under fire. And the DC-3 Skytrains, bracket C-47 Dakota, they're flying 
aren't fully modified. They haven't got proper navigation, military navigation aids in. They haven't got self-sealing fuel tanks. And they haven't got armour around the cockpit. So they're told that they're not allowed to cross the coast. They've got to cast their gliders off out. So they're flying in a stream. And the, um, the brief is that the gliders that have been towed with the Kudamana are being towed by RAF aircraft. And the, the RAF always advocate the stream system rather than formation. Because they've got so many different types of aircraft tugging the aircraft, they've all got different engine performances. And that allows the aircraft commander some discretion as to what height within the boundary has been set and what speed he flies at. And as long as he gets there and he stays in the stream, he's on time, he comes back out at a different height as, as ordered, etc. That gives independence and, and freedom to manoeuvre. So when the stream sets out, there are all kinds of problems with the crews. Uh, the American aircraft, they, they, they don't like the flak, they, they get lost, they, they've got navigation aids, chaos. A, before the operation, there's a much uh, stronger headwind than, than has been predicted. That information is, you know, this is one of the controversies, is the American Air Force said they circulated the information to the airfield, the, the British said they never got the information, so that would have affected the cast-off height and the, the distance from the coastline. Uh, and then there's this training problem, and, and uh, lots of some of the some of the crews have dropped off from Malta. Some of the gliders land in Malta. Some land back in North Africa. A lot of them land in the sea. There's all kinds of it, it is literally aviation carnage. But back at the bridge, um, there's a lead glider, the Sergeant Brown, and um, and uh, under command of uh, a guy called Lieutenant uh, Leonard Withers. Uh, they approach the uh, the bridge. Uh, and as they're being brought in, they're very lucky. They've got a very good RAF pilot flying the Halifax. He's an ex-Boskin down test pilot. And despite the fact that they, when they set off initially, while well, the engines failed, they turn around to go back to the airfield in North Africa. Uh, the engine right, writes itself. They get it working again. And uh, Lieutenant Grant, the pilot of the Halifax, says to uh, says to the gliding pilots, "Do you want to go on?" I say, "Yeah, of course we do." So they turn around again. They set off again. They're out of the stream. They're behind everybody. And they arrive late on, over the coast. Uh, under, straight away, they're picked up by Italian searchlights and anti-aircraft fire, hits the tug aircraft, etc. And uh, um, the, the guys are given the choice of, do you still want to go in? And they say, yes, we do, cast us off. So the glider casts off. And uh, the Halifax then takes a dive on the anti-aircraft guns. This is a four-engine Halifax using its machine guns against one of the anti-aircraft positions and flies back out to sea. Meanwhile, the searchlights are locked on the glider, and uh, Staff Sergeant Galpin, who's the first pilot of the glider, with Sergeant Brown at the controls. So now they've got no engines. They've cast off from the tug. They can only go down. But the searchlights are on them. The tracers are streaming up from the ground towards them. What's he going to do? What a dilemma. So Galpin makes the decision to try and shake off the searchlight, and he does that by turning the glider through 180 degrees losing height and heading back out to sea. So now he's got the order flying back out to sea, losing height all of the time. But he manages to shake off the uh, the lights and he turns again and comes back in. And there's lots of debate about what height, but I think it's about, from what I've read, anywhere between 800 to 1,200 feet he's coming back in at. So he's still, he's still going to lose height, which demonstrates how good the hawser was. He's still flying. And uh, at that point, one of the Italian searchlights is trying to recalibrate itself uh, comes back down, dips down towards the ground, and illuminates the bridge. Galpin and Brown see the bridge and dive towards the bridge, towards their landing zone, do their turn, and manage to land in the field. As they come into the field, um, 
the nose wheel of the horde was ripped off in a ditch, but they're still going along with their nose ploughing through the field till it suddenly, eventually comes to a grinding halt. Doors are open, and Lieutenant Withers and his platoon start to debus from the glider. At that point, Withers, who's a 23-year-old lieutenant, looks around and thinks, well, we were left last, we should be the sixth glider. Where are the other five gliders? Nowhere to be seen. And they've, they've, they've turned back for versions, broken tow ropes, gone to the wrong place, etc. And then he, he looks at the platoon side and says, oh, we'd better carry on. So they start to do, these men are debussing, shaking themselves out from the glider. The glider pilots are climbing out of the glider. But it's their job. And then just at the, they look up and they see, to their relief, another hawser coming out, out of the darkness into land. And by the chalk number and the, the number on the glider, they realise it's, it's the company commander of the Staffords and the squadron commander of the of the Horse Squadron. Uh, great things with us, uh, you know. We, I'm not going to be in charge. Someone else is there, and it's not just one glider. At that point, a vicious stream of straight chaser fire comes from the ground and it starts to thud into the Horse Glider as it flaps it down. It's coming to land. Hits, we think, the Bangalore torpedoes underneath the seats of the Royal Engineers on board. The glider catches fire, explodes, it hits the ground, and almost everybody on board is killed or just a couple of survivors. So just imagine your Lieutenant Withers there then. There are no more gliders coming. Your company commander, you think you've just seen Gulgin literally in flames. What are you going to do? We hope you've enjoyed this episode, part two and three of Talking Operation Husky and the Glider Pilot Regiment with Mike Peters will be out very shortly here on the World's Nation podcast. Don't forget until then though to take a look at the World's Nation shop where you can discover a range of gifts inspired by the past as well as the history behind these unique designs. Big thank you for listening and your incredible support.